Heavenly Father, Lord, we are um, extremely grateful to be here. Um, Lord, we want to lift up uh, all the Sunday school classes. Lord, we want to lift up all the teachers. We want to lift up the kids that are also in their class. Lord, we just pray for their hearts, for the words of the teachers, um, that your spirit would uh, be with them. And Lord, we just pray for this class. Um, we just pray for the words that uh, we will we will hear, Lord, as we learn about you and uh, whether we can know you and uh, who you are and, and what you're like, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for this opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, my name is Chris Kidder. I'm filling in for Mike this week as he is out. And uh, it's an honor to be here. So I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Uh, so the question we asked uh, before we get to that, but is it possible to know God, right? Um, we'll kind of go through a quick review. Uh, so today, last week, Mike talked about the doctrine of the word. And uh, this week, we're going to go over the existence and the attributes of God, the first part. And then uh, Pastor Mike will be back next week uh, to kind of wrap that up. Um, so just a quick review. So last week, uh, Pastor Mike gave like, about five points to kind of talk about the doctrine of the word. And uh, the first one, uh, we saw that the word of God has authority, right? And we see that from 2 Timothy 3, 16, right? That uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, right? It's his words. Um, secondly, he kind of talked about that the scripture is inerrant. Um, so basically the, the original manuscripts, they don't confirm anything that's contrary to fact, right? So we can, we can believe it because it's accurate. Um, we also saw that God's word is understandable and clear. Um, so the psalmist says it's a light unto his path. Um, and we also have Deuteronomy 6, right, where uh, parents are told to, fathers are told to teach these things diligently to your children. In order to teach them, you should be able to understand them, right? Uh, so that was number three. Number four, uh, God's word is indispensable. Uh, so basically it's necessary for salvation, to maintain spiritual life and uh, for knowing God's will, right? And then fifthly, uh, God's word is sufficient. Um, scripture contains all the words of God need, that we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and to obey him perfectly. Okay, so that was a quick review. I want to read uh, very quickly from Psalm 19. Um, there's, it's a great kind of uh, overview of, of scripture. Uh, so there's six parallels you'll see. I'll just read it real quick. Uh, there's a response and a result, right? So uh, reading from Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And the response is that more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And the, the result is that moreover by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So it's kind of just a great picture of scripture and, and, and what it can accomplish, right? All right, so now uh, the question, uh, we're going to look at, at, at three questions, right? So Number one, does God exist? Um, if we're convinced that God exists, then can we know him? And then if we think we can know him, what is he like? 
Um, so those are the three things we're gonna we're kind of gonna kind of look at today. Uh, so does God exist? And I think in your hand out there, uh, right there. So the Bible does not argue for God's existence. So this isn't anything that the Bible spends time doing. It it assumes uh, that it presumes that this is a biblical given, right? We understand that God gives testimony of Himself in the Word, and uh, any other you know any other method of determining whether God exists or not is it's a finite. Uh, Assumption. It's it's in uh, it has indwelling sin, right? So we can look at nature, and we'll look at that, but we'll see that God exists, and we'll look at some other methods, some philosophical arguments, and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, those uh, those arguments are are corrupted by indwelling sin. Um, so the next one here: all persons everywhere have a plain, inexcusable sense that God exists, right? Um, so I want to look real quick at Romans chapter 1. I think maybe you might have read this uh, this week. I'll just look at a few of the verses here. Starting in verse 19 of Romans chapter 1. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And then in verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So all people have been given a sense of God, right? And we see verse 19 it's actually God that gave it to him. Um, and then, you know, he, he gave him this knowledge through what was, what was created uh, and, and uh, his invisible attributes. All of that can be seen through those things, right? And um, in, in verse 20, we see that they're without excuse, right? So it doesn't matter what people say. Uh, they've been given that plain sense and they've exchanged the truth for a lie and they're, and they're without excuse. There's nothing that can come to their aid, right, to, to justify their decision. Um, there's another passage real quick in Psalm 10. It says in verse 3, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Verse 4, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Right? So just kind of further, further example of, uh, you know, the, the people exchanging the truth for a lie. Right? Okay. All right. So, we have clear proof. Um, so clear proof of God's existence is to be seen in Scripture, as we talked about. God gives testimony of himself, right? But it's also to be seen in nature. And um, this is also the idea in, in Romans, right, um, that Paul talks about. There's other spots as well. And um, so, so looking at, at nature, the, the logical conclusion is that there, there must be a creator, Right? Now, we all kind of have this understanding that, you know, somewhere around 6,000 years ago, God created everything, right? Out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. Everything. And so this week, I was kind of looking around, and I found it was, it was pretty interesting, actually. Yearly, they, they find about 18,000 new species of life, whether it's a single-celled organism or a plant or animals or whatever, right? And so I just find that amazing, right? And 
So this year they, they found uh, this 130 foot tall Atlantic tree in Brazil, right? It's 130 feet tall. I don't know how you miss, you know, a tree that's there, but it, you know, um, they also found this beetle. It's called the baffling beetle, and it stands head to toe in about an inch. And its color, its shape, its size, everything matches the abdomen of this army ant. And so what it does is it actually can attach itself to this ant. And they, these ants are nomadic. They just travel. They don't colonize. They don't make homes or anything like that. So this beetle uses it as a taxi service and kind of motors around. And he's not detected because of, of the way God designed him, right? He's the perfect shape, size, and color. You know, and it's just amazing to me that, you know, back when God created the world, all these things were there. And he's been the only one enjoying that since that time, right? And we're still seeing the creativity of God, even 18,000 times over last year. I mean, that's just amazing to me that every year we're able to see his creativity more and more. Um, so that, to me, just, I mean, that's not even looking at the universe, right? You go outside, we don't have time. You go outside the earth, I mean, it's still, it's just amazing, right? So it all points to a, to a creator, right? So there's also, and we won't get too much into this, but there's also some traditional proofs. Um, and these are attempts to analyze evidence in extremely careful and logical ways. So these are kind of philosophical type arguments. Um, I think there's an apologetics class uh, that will be covered at some point during the Sunday school time. So uh, I won't get too much into them, but just to kind of give a brief overview, the, the cosmological and teleological arguments kind of have to do with the universe has a cause and it's very intricately designed. So there must be someone who caused it and someone who has designed it. Um, the ontological argument, I, I don't understand it at all, uh, but basically it's, the idea is that God is greater and existence is greater than non-existence. So there, you know, it doesn't, it's irrational to believe that there is no God, right? Um, and then you have the moral argument, which basically kind of looks at man's sense of right and wrong and his need for justice and desire for justice. And where does that come from, right? Um, it, it, you know, it comes from a God that designs right and wrong, right? All right, so something to touch on very quickly on this point <clears throat> is that only God can remove our sin and enable us to be persuaded of his existence, uh, so just to kind of look at this, I want to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll start in verse 3. Um, in verse 3 it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, Paul's gospel goes out, it goes out to those who are perishing, but those who are perishing are blinded, right? And they're blinded by Satan, the God of this world. They can't not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And that, that's us, right? That was us. And then in verse 6, what happens? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, God comes into our life, he takes the scales from our eyes, and we can see the light of the glory of Christ, right? And so then, then we have the ability to be persuaded that God exists, right? And, and we know that that comes through, you know, faith comes by hearing, and, and hearing by the word of God, right? And, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little more, but it's an important point to remember um, 
that it's, you, you, you won't believe that God exists unless he enables you to believe that he exists, right? All right, so we're convinced that God uh, exists, so can we know him? Can we know who God is, right? Um, so the Bible is clear. It states that God can be known personally, right? He, he is imminent. He's, with, he's within us, right? He's close at hand. He's here. Um, <clears throat> you have some verses in the handout there. I think, um, you know, God's called a friend. Uh, we're said to have a home with Christ. And, and in John 17, we can have an intimate uh, knowledge or relationship with God. Um, and I want to look at uh, Jeremiah very quickly. Um, in chapter 9, verse 23, this is what God says that we should glory in, right? Um, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts or let him who glory glory in this, that he understands and knows me, right? So what our boast should be is that we have a personal knowledge of God, right? We have the ability to have a personal knowledge of God And, and there isn't anything in scripture that says that we can't. We can't have that. But the Bible does also state that God is unsearchable, right? So he's transcendent. Um, so there's, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. How do we balance this? But we look at like uh, some of the verses in the handout there. Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. unsearchable. Psalm 147, Brian, not one, 145. Uh, is, his understanding is beyond measure. And in Isaiah 55, his ways and understanding are not ours, right? So he is, he is above our, what our mind can grasp at the same time, right? So which is right? Can we know God or can we not know God? It's, it's kind of a, yeah, exactly, right? So it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition, right, of two scenarios. And it could be frustrating for people. Um, but I think, it, it, you know, in Romans 11, Paul kind of deals with that. And he says, oh, the, the wonders of the greatness of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he goes into this whole praise, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it, it should cause us to praise him because we don't want to serve and worship a God that we can fully understand, right? Because if we can fully understand it, then he's not above, he's not above us. He's not greater than us, right? So that's, you know, it's a good thing. Um, so how has, how has God revealed himself, right? There's, there's two kind of main ways, I think, that God has revealed himself. <clears throat> the first one is God rev- has revealed himself generally. Um, so we know through nature, um, we can look at creation, we talked about that. But also beyond that, um, in Acts 17, in Acts 14, um, Paul kind of lays out this. Uh, in Acts 14 is a good one. Um, Paul and Barnabas are in, uh, I think it's Iconium, and uh, the guys come to him, and they're like, they want to make him Zeus, right? And he's like, you know, not having that. And he, he tells them, look, there's, you know, let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, you know, so he tells them that, hey, there's, there's God who has given you uh, rain and uh, fruitfulness, and let's see, in verse, I think it's 17 of Acts 14, is that right? Maybe not. At any rate, um, yeah, right here. It is 17. 
And, it, and yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains and heavens and fruitful seasons, <clears throat> satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So that's, that's, that's a general revelation, right? We have, we have seasons, we have rain, we have, you know, crops, and we have food and gladness, and that, that, comes, from, that comes from God, right? Um, and then, you know, in Acts 17, he does a similar thing, and, in, and at the end, in verse 30, he, he says that, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. So these kinds of things should, you know, inevitably open our hearts and, and, and point us towards a God who demands repentance, right? And so that kind of leads into the second way he reveals himself, you know, and that's that God has revealed himself <coughs> specially. Now this is, uh, this is how God has made himself known uh, through his word and through the personal experience of, of Jesus Christ, right? Um, in Romans 10, uh, verse 13, we know that uh, Paul says, uh, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? But how will they, what is it? Yeah, how will they believe, yeah, if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one is sent, right? And so we understand that in order to hear and believe and call and be saved, we need the scripture to do that, right? And so we need to hear someone preaching to us the gospel. And uh, so that initially is a, a special revelation of, of God in our hearts, right? When we hear that word and we're saved. But I don't think that's the only time um, that Christ is revealed to us, especially. Um, you know, I, I think he does it throughout our life, right? As believers, we, we have this revelation of Christ. And, and one of the ways that he does it is through trials, right? So uh, you look at at First uh, at Peter one, and and in, from the time that we realize our salvation to the time that we obtain our salvation, in the middle, there, we're going to be encountered with various trials, right? In James one, he says to count those trials as joy. And that's that's insane. Why would we count trials as joy? You know, nobody does that. But yeah, because in in Peter he says this is the proof, the genuineness of your faith, right? Well, how is that the genuineness of your faith? Because Christ, he ministers to you. The Spirit is there with you. So anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time, right, you know you're inevitably going to go through some trials, multiple trials. You know, and at the end of it, when you come out on the other side, your faith is stronger, right? You have a better relationship with Christ. And that's because he was there with you through it, right? And so you don't doubt your salvation, right? The more trials you go through, the, the firmer your salvation is, right? You look at that, you don't question Man, am I, am I saved? I think I'm, it doesn't happen because you have that relationship with Christ that's been strengthened through trial, right? And so I think that's another way that he kind of reveals himself uh, specially. So just to kind of wrap it up on that one, um, in short, we can know God truly, yet not exhaustively, right? So God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible, Right? So this is, this is frustrating, um, especially, you know, for myself. I'm a guy that, you know, I like to fix things, right? I, I fix my car. I do my own car repairs. I fix my washing machine or my stove or whatever it is, right? YouTube is my best friend uh, because, I, you know, they have videos for everything. And so I'm frustrated if I can't figure out how it works uh, because in order to fix it, you got to know how it works, right? So I, we can't understand how God works, right? And so, you know, you, what do we do? We throw in the towel, right? 
But, you know, David, David kind of went through this. <clears throat> in Psalm 139, in verse 6, he said, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He just got done talking about, no matter where I go, God, you're there. You form my inward parts. Before a word is on my lips, you know it. Right? He goes through all this, and he says, this, 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 this knowledge is too wonderful. I can't attain it. I quit. You know? But in verse 17, he, he doesn't quit. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Right? He just he thinks about it. He dwells on the, the thoughts of God and just kind of what that is. And he, uh, it's a joy to him to do that. Right? And so that's kind of what we have to do. We praise with Paul in Romans 11. Okay. So, doing good. All right, the perfections of God. So if we, if we believe that God exists... <coughs> and we believe that we can know God, then what is he like, right? Um, so these are the perfections, or the attributes of God, as I was reading uh, over the last couple weeks. Um, some people have called them perfections, and I, I kind of like that. Um, it, it just kind of gives a more uh, comprehensive look at the essence of God, his eternal character. He's perfect. Um, and so what is he like? Well, he has perfections. Um, but attributes, it's the same, the same thing, right? <clears throat> so there's basically two of them. There's incommunicable and communicable. So the communicable ones are the ones that God, they're more shared with us, right? We don't want to say completely shared, right? We love, but we don't, you know, we don't have a, uh, we're not infinitely loving, right? Um, and then incommunicable are those that God doesn't share. He doesn't communicate uh, with anyone else. And so Pastor Mike, as we were going through this, he kind of shared a, a cool way to remember them. So as long as you guys can remember your vowels, right? A, E, I -O -U. no Y, okay? I'm sorry, but there is no. <laughs> All right, so if you can remember them, right? It's <clears throat> God is always eternal, independent, omnipresent, and unchangeable, right? So it's kind of a cool a cool way to remember that. So uh, we thank Mike for that one. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's dig into uh, to what the perfections are here. So the first one is the uh, the aseity of God, or His independence or self existence. Right. So God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So in scripture we have statements, you know, such as God has life in himself. God existed before all things. He depends on nothing. He does everything for his own sake. He's the first and the last. He's the source of everything, right? So what we have in this perfection is that God is and always has been perfectly self-sufficient, right? He never has a need for anything outside of himself. Never has, never will, right? As a result, he's the source of everything. If you look at Job 41, God talking to Job, he says, who's first given to me that I should repay? Whatever is under heaven is mine, right? But what about us, right? I mean, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us as sons, right? So he must have he must have needed us, right? So this is a quote by Grudem. I'm not sure if it's on the handout, but okay. Uh, so people have sometimes thought that God created human beings because he was lonely or needed fellowship with other persons. If this were true, it would certainly mean that God is not completely independent of his creation. 
it would mean that God would need to create persons in order to be completely happy or completely, <coughs> excuse me, fulfilled in his personal experience. So now that we feel this big and we have no significance, we might as well just pray and, and head home, right? But that's, we, we, we read scripture and we understand, right? That's not what this means. It doesn't mean that we have no significance. In fact, it should kind of cause us to really praise God because he doesn't need us, right? But we do, he has given us the ability and the scriptural mandate to, to bring him glory. Um, more than that, right? God has created us and he has determined that we should be meaningful to him. And that, that's the final definition of genuine significance, right? He doesn't need us, but he's determined that we should be significant. Um, so we can look at, uh, there's a lot of passages. There's one in Zephaniah. I'm, I'm not sure of the reference off the top of my head, but God has said to rejoice over us with dancing, right? I mean, that's kind of a cool thought. Um, and then in verse, uh, Isaiah 62, uh, verse 3, God says, You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of your Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. So your God will rejoice over you, at the end of verse 5 there. Um, so it's true that God doesn't need us for anything, but it's also equally true of the amazing fact that God has chosen to delight in us and, uh, and, and allowed us to bring joy to his heart, right? All right, so the next one is the immutability of God. Um, so God's immutability is his perfect unchangeability in his essence, his character, his purpose, and his promises, right? So I apologize on your handout there. I think it says James 1.12. That is my mistake. It is James 1.17. Uh, but it's uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Um, in Malachi 3.6, he says, I am the Lord, I change not. Right? So it's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, Arthur Pink said it this way. He says, there never was a time... When he was not, there will never come a time when he shall cease to be. God is neither evolved, grown, or improved. Um, you know, in Psalm 102, we see that he's eternally the same. In Isaiah 41, he's the first and last. And then all his thoughts, purposes, wills, and decrees are unchanging, right? 1 Samuel 15, Romans 11, Psalm 138. Um, his attributes are also unchanging. Jeremiah 31, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Right? And my faithfulness, and I have continued my faithfulness to you. Uh, Psalm 136, over and over the refrain is repeated the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever for the entire psalm. Right? Says something about God, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Says something about God, his steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Right? Um, another area is his counsel. Um, in Psalm 33, you read uh, the counsel of the Lord stands, right? And his plans to all generations. Um, so once God has determined that he will assuredly bring something about, his purpose is unchanging and it will be achieved, right? Um, in Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 to 11, right? Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet done, saying my purpose 
will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And at the end of verse 11, truly I have spoken, truly I, have bring, I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Um, so there's a couple quotes, I think, by MacArthur and Grudemann there. And, and um, one of the things that the immutability of God doesn't mean is that he's static or inert. He doesn't, doesn't mean that he's impassable or he, he has no affections. Um, we'll get, kind of get into that hopefully later. Um, but God, there are, he acts in moments of time and he has distinct affections in those, in those moments of time. And we'll, we'll kind of look at that because it's, it's something that I, I, I kind of went through this week. But, um, you know, thinking of, of, of unchanging, right, we kind of have an understanding of what it's like to be unchanging. Um, you know, I might say, hey, man, I'm going to stick to this, to this diet, right? And I'm going to follow this path and I'm going to do this thing, you know, and then, you know, we, we go to the buffet or something after church, right? And then, well, maybe, maybe not, right? But, um, you know, we do that with everything, right? We don't have the power to bring something to pass, right? There's always plan B or plan C or however far out in the alphabet we need to go, right? And we, we just don't have the ability. So we, we can't completely grasp this concept. Um, all right. So there may be questions on that. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. Um, so we'll go to the next one here. So this, we'll, we'll cover three of these, but God is infinite. Uh, and first up is his omnipotence, right? So basically this is God's ability to do anything consistent with his nature. So we have statements in Genesis 18 that says, is anything too hard for the Lord, right? Obviously the implied answer is no. Uh, in Ephesians 3, Paul says that God is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, right? So, so God is able to do anything, right? Is that the, that's the question, right? Is God able to do anything? So we have in, in the handout there, there's a few things that God cannot do, right? So in Hebrews 6, God cannot lie. 2 Timothy 2, God cannot deny himself. <clears throat> James 1, God cannot be tempted. We saw in Malachi 3 that God cannot change, right? So can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up, right? That's the other kind of question that we, that people ask, right? So it, there's two kind of distinctions when looking at the power of God, right? Um, there's, there's a faulty distinction and a biblical distinction, um, so the faulty distinction, the faulty distinction kind of takes God's power uh, in a vacuum, right? And it says this is, this is his preeminent attribute. He can do anything that he wants, no matter what, even if that means he's going to change, he's going to sin, he's going to die, right? He makes the, the true false and the false true, right? It doesn't matter. They give uh, preeminence to his power. And, and people will do that with any emotion, right? Or any of his attributes, right? Love or mercy or wrath or whatever it is, right? And then there's a biblical distinction. Um, and this is, this is one that basically says that theoretically we understand that God has absolute power to do more than he actually does. But his ordinate power, which is his ability to bring about what he has decreed, is his true demonstration of power. Um, because it is consistent with his essence and his eternal character. So in other words, God is, and, my, and Pastor Mike will get more into this next week, but he's perfectly balanced with all of his attributes. There isn't one that's more than the other or one that's less than the other, right? He's perfectly balanced, and his power 
is also balanced, right? And so it, it, it stays within his eternal character and becomes a, a manifestation of the unity of all of his, of his attributes. Okay. So next is his omnipresence. Um, so God does not have size, and it's not special. I apologize again. Spatial, spatial with an A, right? God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. So wait. God does not, <laughs> God does not change. How can he act differently? This is, man, this is just not, my head can't handle it, right? But what, what I mean by acts differently, and we'll look at a couple passages so that we can see is that we understand that God is present everywhere in his whole being, right? So, uh, but he performs different actions uh, in different situations. So look, let's look at Amos <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 1. Now just kind of pay attention. I'll read it. Just kind of follow along as, as, he, as, as he lists out all the different places, right? So in verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will say, shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will, say, then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will, they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. So God is present in Sheol, in heaven, on Carmel, in the ocean, in captivity. He's present in all those places. And in this passage, he's, he's present there to punish, right? Um, we read in like Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1 that, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He sustains. So he's present to sustain. He's not punishing. He's not blessing. He's, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. It's something different, right? Um, we, we, we need to understand the majority of the time that God speaks of the presence of God. It's referring to blessing. Okay, so John 14.23, uh, you know, Christ... We, we, make a home with us in second Corinthians three, where the spirit is, there's liberty Romans eight. Um, the spirit is in you. Um, that's life, right? So these are all the presence of God and they're, and they're for blessing, right? And that's all over scriptures. We learn to see and kind of read that. We'll know that when it speaks of the presence of God, majority of the time it's, it's referring to blessing. Um, one thing we, we do need to understand though, and this is kind of where, uh, I kind of got hung up this week, right? Is we need to caution against thinking that parts of God are present in a particular situation and parts are present in a different situation. So when we read in Amos that he's there to punish, that's God's anger and his wrath is present, and that's all, right? And then in Romans 8, you know, here's his love and his mercy and his grace, right? It, it, it's not, God is as glorified in his wrath as he is in saving sinners, right? And so, God, when he's present somewhere, he's present with his whole being, all of his attributes, 
right, together. Um, you know, but we also have to be careful because in 1 Kings we read that, you know, uh, God cannot be contained by any space. But we can't think that God is, you know, bigger than space because that's still dimensionally thinking of God, right? It's, he's, it, I don't understand it altogether, but he, he, we, we, we only speak in a language that the, you know, in the language that the Bible gives us, right? So we can't understand completely what God uh, is, is, is like, but we need to understand that we want to be careful not to put dimensions or uh, put them in a box, I guess you could say, right? So God, God is not controlled by space or location, right? He transcends that. He's the Lord of space and location. Uh, he has the ability to be present in all places at all times, which also includes our hearts. Uh, and there's a pretty good quote here, um, but I'll read it. Um, so when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house, which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. <clears throat> Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart. There you meditate. He is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him, right? All right, so the last, uh, the last one we want to look at here is the eternality of God. And this one is so much easier to understand than the rest of them. That God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly. Yet God sees events in time and acts in time. Right, so can we say, can we say uh, that God exists outside of moments of time? Right, but what about Romans 5, 6, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come. Right, so, yes, you're right, right? <laughs> so it's, but it's obvious that God interacts in time, right? So it's something that's very difficult to, or at least for me, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a knuckle dragger. I make pet food for a living. I don't claim to be a smart guy, right? But, um, I, I, there's an example, and it, it breaks down. It's not perfect, right? But um, has anybody ever been to, like, the Rose Parade? Yeah, we used to go quite a bit, right? We'd go the night before and camp out on the street and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Again, I don't claim to be wise. <clears throat> um, but when you sit there, right, you watch the parade go by, and you see each float, one after the other, one after the other, right? And it's, that's kind of the successive moments of time, right? But God is kind of like you know, above that, you know, when you see the shot of the blimp, right, as the parade rolls down or the Colorado Boulevard, right, you see the whole parade from beginning to end. And, you know, I, I get that it, it's not a perfect example, but God is above time, right? And so he can see, he sees time as a whole, right? So we can, we can look at that, right? So to confuse you even more, uh, in, Psalm, in Psalm 90, verse 4, uh, it says that God sees a thousand years, as yesterday. And that doesn't mean that after a thousand years, 
God forgets, right? It's talking about, it's, you know, it's talking about eternity, right? But he sees that as clear as yesterday. For most of us, we can remember yesterday pretty clearly, right? And so that's how God sees eternity as yesterday, eternity past, right? And we all, we're familiar with the verse in, in 2 Peter 3, right? To God, a thousand years is as one day, right? So again, a thousand years is this description of forever, and so what God is saying is, or, or one day is as a thousand years, right, is that that one day is forever in the consciousness of God, right? So he sees eternity past and, and future as, as, uh, as though it was yesterday, but he, he also sees one day it's in his consciousness forever, right? So it's time, <clears throat> you can kind of see that the, the quotes there, but time is his servant to accomplish his will. Um, what's that? is consequential yes exactly right it it has no effect on his plans his purposes his decrees right from beginning through the end um it is as clear to him as this moment is to us right every every moment in time is as clear to him as as right now for us right so um again it's it is difficult to 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 wrap our minds around and that's a good thing um but uh praise god for that um, so before we get to questions, uh, we have four minutes, and I don't want to pay anyone $20. So um, I wanted to talk about this because this is something that I kind of, as I thought about it this week and, and last week, just, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a hard thing to kind of wrap, at least for me to wrap my mind around, right? So when we talk about the immutability of God, we kind of, maybe it's a duh thing for most of us, right? We've, we've been walking with the Lord for so long, it's kind of one of those things that you just believe, right? Um, but in, in Genesis 6, you know, we, we see that God regretted that he made man. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, um, actually it's verse, uh, verse 11, not 10, um, he's sorry that he made Saul king. Uh, in Jonah 3.10, um, God relented from what he was going to do to the Ninevites. Um, so those are kind of hard passages to, to look at um, to say that God doesn't change, right? So he, it's obvious he changed his mind. It's right there. Um, so as we, as we said earlier, you know, we, we communicate with God in our language, right? This is the only language we have, right? And so the Bible does a lot of, of things like we would call anthropomorphisms, right? So in, in other words, God is said to have a right hand, right? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, God dwells on a throne. He dwells in heaven, um, you know, these are, you know, he measured the universe with his span, right? These are, God is, from John 4, we know that God is spirit. So God doesn't have a right hand. He doesn't, I mean, there's things that, but we don't understand that. So the Bible uses our language to help us understand, right? Um, and so when we look at Genesis 6, God is not in that moment going, holy smokes, what, what happened? This is, man is wicked, right? He, he knew what would happen, right? He, he understood that. Right, and, and Grudem kind of quotes this, this. This was a present displeasure toward the sinfulness of man. It can instead imply that God's previous action led to events that in the short term caused him sorrow, but that nonetheless in the long term would ultimately achieve his good purposes. Right, And R.C. Sproul kind of uses, uh, you know, he talks about the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? And he had, a, he had an example of that. You know, and we don't assume that God is some you know, spiritual cowboy or, or you know, uh, cattle farmer, right? 
You know, we understand that when the psalm says the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, what it's, what it's referring to, right, in Job 41, that everything under heaven is mine, right? So the Bible uses that kind of language. Um, so I just want to go through this real quick. Uh, just think for a moment. Um, I don't know if it's there. Yeah. Uh, it, what if the doctrine wasn't true? Um, maybe in God's being, he could change. Right? Maybe he became something better, which would imply that he wasn't the best already, right? Or maybe he becomes wholly evil altogether, right? And we, we would have no power to do anything about that, right? We would spend eternity with a wholly evil God, right? But what about his purposes, right? He said that Christ is going to come and reign, but maybe not. What if that changes, right? Or, or his promises, right? Today, we have faith that the blood of Christ covers us, but maybe... Maybe that will change. Or maybe God doesn't have the power to do that, right, if his perfections change. And so it, if God is unchanging, then, we, have, then we, have, we can have faith, right? But if he's not unchanging, our whole faith falls apart, right? Um, so I don't have time to go into any more because we need to pray. But uh, I'll, I'll hang out up here for a minute if anyone has any questions and we can uh, be stumped together. But... Uh, I appreciate uh, y'all listening and, uh, and taking that in. That's a, that was a good one. That's tough. But let's pray and, uh, and, and wrap up here. Father God, we're grateful again for this time, Lord. And it, we, we understand that it's difficult um, to mine the depths of who you are. And we, we, don't, we won't ever do that, right? Um, Lord, but we just pray that the Spirit would... Uh, come alongside of us, that we would understand more today than we knew yesterday. Um, how great to gain a little more knowledge today and a little more knowledge tomorrow, Lord. Help us to stay motivated. Help us to stay on fire to just continue to learn about who you are. Um, we, we love you, Lord, and we just uh, we pray for continued knowledge and wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.